My name is Josh Miller, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sutter Church. And if you're a guest, I'd love to meet you after the service and get to know you a little bit. Uh, really glad that you're here, and I would love to uh, explain a little bit more about the church and, and what we're all about. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Last week, we started a sermon series uh, working through the book of Ruth, and uh, I told you last week that Ruth is sort of the classic love story of the scriptures. But if you were here last week and you heard Ruth chapter 1, you probably thought it was a very strange way to start a love story because it was so sad, okay? Everything about Ruth chapter 1 was really, really sad. So here is a recap of what happened if you weren't with us or just to refresh in your mind. The story revolves around two Israelite women, um, one named Naomi and one named Ruth. Naomi lived with her husband and two sons in the town of Bethlehem. And the word Bethlehem actually means bread basket, house of bread, okay? So Bethlehem was known for being a place where there's lots of food, but a famine was in the land, and as a result, there was no food even in Bethlehem. So you know that this famine was really, really bad. So Naomi and her family left their homeland, they left Bethlehem, and they moved to Moab, which was a neighboring nation. The people in Moab didn't know the God of Israel. They worshiped some pretty crazy gods, but that is where they went to try to find food. When they got to Moab, unfortunately, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, passed away. He died. We don't know why, but that's what happened. Then her two sons married two Moabite women, okay? So they married a woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. But then about 10 years later, Naomi's sons died as well. And so Naomi is left without a husband, without two sons, and she has two Moabite daughters-in-law. Well, Naomi hears news that bread is back in Bethlehem, that the famine has been lifted, and so she decides that she's going to go back to Bethlehem and try to eke out her existence kind of off of the charity of her family members. And so she starts to go to Jerusalem, and she dissuades, or she attempts to dissuade her daughters-in-law for coming with her. So they go with her for a little while, but then she convinces Orpah to go back to Moab. She says, Orpah, go back. It's going to be better for you there, and so Orpah does. But Ruth, in a moment of really moving commitment and loyalty, pledges herself to Naomi and actually becomes an Israelite. So she places her faith not just in Naomi, but in Naomi's God, and she becomes a worshiper of the true God. So chapter 1 ends with Ruth and Naomi arriving back to Bethlehem, and they're being greeted by the women of the town. And they say, oh, it, it's Naomi, you're back after so long, you know, we're so glad you're here. And Naomi says to them, no longer call me Naomi, a word and a name which means sweet, but call me Mara, which is a word that means bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi sweet, but call me bitter because God has brought misfortune upon me. Chapter ends, okay? At first blush, not a great way to start a romantic comedy, right? Like, this is just not what you're expecting in a love story. Chapter one was really, really sad. Both Naomi and Ruth have experienced great loss and are returning to Bethlehem utterly impoverished. Everything that you could count as status or security or hope in that culture had been taken from them. They had lost loved ones. They had lost their land. They had lost all of their wealth. They were in desperate need of two things. They were in desperate need of food and of family, of food and of family. So you don't read the first chapter and think like, yeah, this is going to be a great love story. But one of the things that the book of Ruth teaches us is that sometimes God allows tragedy in your life to set the stage for triumph. Sometimes God allows tragedy in your life to set the stage for triumph. When it seems God is farthest from us, in the chapters of our life that feel like the first chapter of Ruth, he may be, he just may be laying the foundation for his greatest displays of faithfulness to us. So when your life feels like chapter one of Ruth, when it feels like God could not be farther from you, just like I'm sure Ruth and Naomi felt like God was very far from them, it could be that just like Ruth and Naomi, he's actually laying the foundation for a massive demonstra demonstration of his faithfulness. And if you listen really carefully in Ruth chapter one, you actually pick up whispers of this hope. Verse six says this, verse six, the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem and given them food. And verse 22 says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So there was food again in Bethlehem. And Ruth and Naomi arrived just in time for harvest, just in time for when that food is going to be brought in and can actually be eaten. Okay? Make no mistake about it. Ruth chapter 1 is very dark. It is a very discouraging, 
picture of Ruth and Naomi's life. It's very honest about the struggles of life. Everything seemed to fall apart in their life, absolutely everything. And it could be that in some area of your life this morning, you feel like things are falling apart, right? Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe you're really lonely. Maybe it's your finances. You've just had one thing after another come up, and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. Maybe it's your extended family or your immediate family. There's a lot of conflict. Maybe somebody that you really care about is struggling with an addiction, or maybe you were just diagnosed with, man, a really devastating uh, illness. I, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I imagine if you're like me, there's some area of your life this morning that feels like Ruth chapter one, right? It feels like you're falling apart. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're walking through a season of depression. Maybe you just watch the news and you've just looked at what's been going on in our society and you just think, man, what is going on? But if you can relate with any of that, if you can relate with Ruth chapter one, stick with me today because Ruth chapter one sets the stage for Ruth chapter two. And Ruth chapter two teaches us truths about God, deep truths about God that give us hope even in the dark. It teaches us truths about the creator of the universe, that are able to give us hope, that are able to give you hope, even when it feels like your world is falling apart. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to walk us through chapter 2 of Ruth. And it's a really, it's a fascinating story. We're going to have some fun, okay? Because it really is a, a really, there's a lot of innuendo. It's really fun. So we're going to walk through Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to explain to you what's going on because I know it happened a long time ago. And sometimes you're like, what does gleaning mean? What the heck is all this stuff, right? So we're going to walk you through it. And then at the end, I'm going to draw out these four important truths that the author wants you to learn about God from Ruth chapter 2, okay? Does that sound good? All right, so look with me at verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2. It says this. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So at the end of chapter one, we have two main characters that are still living, okay? We have Naomi and we have Ruth. And like I said earlier, they have two major needs in their life. They need food immediately, they're going to starve, and they need family eventually, or they're not going to be able to provide for themselves. It was an agrarian society, so if you didn't own land, you needed to marry into a family that had land, or else you'd never be able to be provided for. You would be uh, forever impoverished, no way of supporting yourself. The rest of the book of Ruth is going to address those two main problems, the need for food and the need for family. Verse chapter one, enter the knight in shining armor, okay? Enter the guy that God is going to work through to meet these two major needs in Naomi and Ruth's life. His name is Boaz. What a great name. We should all name our kids Boaz, okay? So if you're having a baby, you're thinking about it, a little advice from me, name your kid Boaz. All right, we learned two things about Boaz. Number one, he's from the clan of Elimelech, and everybody said, why does that matter, right? Well, the way that Israelite society worked was like this. You were part of an immediate family, and then your family was also a part of a clan, and your clan was a part of a tribe. Does that make sense? And the most important social group that you belonged to was not the tribe or even your family. It was your clan. And the reason for that was that clans had responsibility to take care of one another. Okay, so if you and I were in the same clan and I was down on my luck, you were obligated to take care of me. So if you knew that my harvest had gotten ruined or, you know, I had lost my land, you were obligated to take me in because we were part of the same clan. Okay, you weren't obligated to do that if we were simply part of the same tribe, but you were if we were part of the same clan. So the first thing we learn is this guy Boaz just so happens to be part of the same clan as Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and hence Naomi. You following with me why that's important? So he has some social responsibility to care for Naomi and Ruth. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is that he is a worthy man, or your translation might say a man of standing. Okay, that referred either to Boaz's wealth, to Boaz's character, or to both. Okay, it could mean, hey, he's rich. It could mean he's a really good guy, or it could mean both. And what we're going to find out is that it means both. So, we're going to leave Boaz for a while, but the author just wants you to know that he's around. He's like, hey, there's a guy named Boaz. Pretty solid dude. Keep him in mind, okay? That's verse 1. All right, verse, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Okay, so... In the book of Leviticus, which is, which is in the Old Testament, God had established certain laws for his people. And in chapter 19 of Leviticus, he established the law of gleaning. Everybody say gleaning. Ready? Gleaning. Oh, that was poor. Ready? Gleaning. Okay, gleaning is an important thing in this chapter of Ruth. Here, gleaning was basically God's social safety net for his people. And this is how it worked. 
everyone that owned land would, would plow and would plant their land, and they'd go and harvest it, right? That's how agrarian societies work. But, but God commanded that if you owned land, you were not allowed to harvest up to the very edges of your field. You had to leave the corners of your field unharvested. You had to uh, mitigate your profits. You weren't allowed to maximize your profits. Well, why? Why would that be the case? Well, because it allowed those who didn't have land, it allowed those who were impoverished, who were materially poor, to come behind your workmen and to glean. And what the, the poor would do is they would walk behind the workers, and they would pick up anything the workers dropped, and when they came to the corners of a field, they would harvest that corner. It was God's means of providing for people that didn't have land. It was God's version of a social safety net, okay? That was gleaning. So, basically, Naomi and Ruth come back just in time for the barley harvest. That's really important because if there's no harvest, you can't glean anything. And Ruth says, hey, I'm going to go out and see, just see if there's a landowner who will let me glean in their land. Now, that's really important because if you were here last week, you know that in this time period in Israel, it, no one was following God's law at all. Nobody. So it, not, most landowners weren't letting poor people glean on their land because what would that mean? It meant you were bringing in less, less profit that year, right? So most people were like, no, you can't glean on my land. And beyond that, Ruth was a foreigner. So it would be really easy for a landowner to say, well, you're a foreigner. You can't glean here. You're not an Israelite. So Ruth needed a landowner who would honor God's law, who would honor the commandment, and let her glean in his fields, okay? She needed someone with power to treat her kindly. Verse number three. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Reapers just means workers. And she, she happened, she just so happened, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who, if you've forgotten, was of the clan of Elimelech, right? And behold, Boaz, I love his name, Boaz, and Boaz came from Bethlehem. So the town was in here and all the fields surrounded the town, right? So he comes out to, the, out to the fields from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, his workers, the Lord be with you, right? And they all answered, the Lord bless you. I want you to start responding to me when I see you on Sunday morning that way, okay? I'm going to start saying, the Lord be with you. Say, the Lord bless you, Josh, okay? So Ruth sets out to glean, and this is when things get really, really interesting. Because verse chapter, or verse 3 says, she happened to come to Boaz's field. Now, there were a lot of fields that surrounded Bethlehem. It was called the breadbasket, right? It was full of fields everywhere. And fields in Israel at that time weren't well marked. They didn't use fences because it would take up land. So everybody just sort of knew where one field ended and the other began, right? But only locals knew that. Ruth didn't know that. She didn't grow up in Bethlehem. So she's just wandering aimlessly through fields. And it just so happens that she comes to Boaz's field, okay? Very interesting. That phrase translated, uh, she happened to come, would be our phrase, as luck would have it. Okay, that's kind of the, the Hebrew. So as luck would have it, she comes to Boaz's field. I, I love this story, you can tell. So then in verse 4 it says, and behold, right? It's kind of an interesting segue. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem to inspect his harvest. And just in case you forgot, the author's like, remember, he's of the clan of Elimelech, right? The author's really, like, he's really putting it down for us, okay? You got to read this the context clues. So Ruth just so happened to end up in Boaz's field, and Boaz just so happened to come to that exact field at the exact time that Ruth was there. Very interesting, okay? Verse 5, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, so like the foreman, okay, the guy kind of running the show, the manager, whose young woman is this? So he, he notices Ruth, whose young, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So Boaz notices Ruth. He doesn't know. He's like, who, I don't know who this is. I didn't hire her. She's not one of my normal people that works for me. So he goes to the foreman, to the manager, and says, hey, who is that? But what's really interesting is he doesn't say, who is that? He says, whose is that? You know, like, that's a weird thing to say. Why is he saying that? Well, the author wants you to come back to how important family is. He's asking the question, what clan does she belong to? What is her family? See, today in our society, when you meet somebody, you say, hey, I'm Josh. What do you do, right? But if you lived in a traditional society, if you lived in India today or back in the Middle East, you know, thousands of years ago, you would say, hey, I'm Josh, who's your father? That's literally what you would say. Because we identify with one another by our vocation, but people in traditional cultures identify with one another by their family status. So that's all he's saying. 
Who does she belong to? Of whose family is she? The author is saying, hey, look, family really matters. And unfortunately, Ruth has no one, okay? And the, the manager responds, she is a foreigner from Moab who came back with the widow, Naomi. She, she asked me permission to glean. I gave her permission to glean, and she has been working hard in the field since the morning until now. All right. So Boaz gets filled into the details, and this is where the, the heat really gets ramped up. If you were an Israelite audience, the rest of this story, your eyebrows are up and you're gasping, okay? Now, we're, it probably won't be the same for you. I'm going to try to help it be the same for you, right? But you just have to understand, there's a lot of innuendo going on in this story. Boaz gets filled in. Oh, that poor person over there, that foreigner over there, that person of a minority over there, oh, she's just some, she's a widow, she's with another widow, she's got nothing. I just told her that she could pick up some food, right? And here's, what's, here's what happens next. This is, this is crazy. Boaz makes a beeline for Ruth. I mean, he stops everything that he's doing, and he goes directly for Ruth. The wealthy, majority culture, Israelite landowner stops what he's doing and goes directly to the impoverished minority culture foreigner who is begging in his fields. This is a thing, okay? This, this is a thing. And I, I, to help you understand, I was trying to come up with a good comparison. We don't really have one in our society, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like if the president of UVA, if like, you know, Dr. Ryan or whatever, was like meeting with a bunch of people, like meeting with a bunch of trustees or whatever, and they're walking along the corner, and he left the trustees he just left them, and he went and had an extended conversation with somebody on the corner that was begging for change, okay? That is the kind of, to kind of give you the sense of how, like, oh, this is, that's what's going on. So he goes over, and he, and he says this, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women, so the servants that he had hired. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So when you really dig into this, you realize that Boaz is going way over the top. He's not just being kind here. He's starting to be a little bit romantic, and it's, which is crazy because he doesn't know Ruth very well. But let me walk you through and how, how you can tell this. Number one, in those days, it was common for Israelites to refer to foreigners as dogs, Okay. I'm not saying that was cool. I'm just saying that's what they did, okay? They referred to other people as dogs. He goes up to Ruth and refers to her as daughter. He says, not young woman, he says daughter. He uses a term of endearment. Then he insists on her staying in his field. He says it three times. He's like, don't leave this field, don't leave this field, stay in this field, okay? He says it three times, and he promised to protect her. Functionally, he went to his workers and was like, hey, man, you keep your hands to yourself or you're going to have me to deal with, Okay? That's functionally what Boaz did because foreign women out in a field by themselves with workers was not a safe thing in Israel at this point. Israel was in a really bad way morally. So functionally, Boaz says, hey, I've taken care of the workmen. They're not going to touch you or they're going to have me to deal with. And then he goes way over the top. He basically says, hey, anytime you're thirsty, go to my workmen's water jars and just drink whatever you want. Now to us, that's kind of like, oh, that's nice. But you have to understand that in that culture in that day, Israelites would not share water jars with foreigners because they thought of them as unclean. And men would not share water jars with women. So what he's functionally doing is flipping all of the social standards on top of themselves. And he's saying, hey, you're a foreign woman, but you are going to go whenever you want, and you're going to drink out of my workers' water jars. I mean, he's being so incredibly kind. Boaz treated Ruth like an honored member of his family like an honored member of his family, rather than a foreign beggar in his fields. Boaz treated Ruth like an honored member of his family, rather than a foreign woman in his fields. And when you understand that, it explains why Ruth responds the way she does in verse 10, okay? She says this, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, that's the word for worship in the Old Testament, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me, since I I'm a foreigner. She is blown away. She doesn't understand why Boaz is being so kind. And so she, she just says, why? Why are you treating me this way? And Boaz responded. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come 
to take refuge. So Boaz replies, hey, I've heard about your commitment and kindness to Naomi, and I've heard that you've placed your trust in the God of Israel, in the one true God. I'm simply the way that the Lord is responding to your faith. You understand that? That's what Boaz is saying. He's saying, look, I'm just the way that the God you're trusting in is going to choose to provide for you in this season. I am an avenue of God's blessing in your life. Verse 13, Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. There's that word favor again. You got to keep that word in mind. We're going to come back to it. Now, after verse 13, after this dialogue, some time passes, okay? There's a kind of a pregnant pause in the narration that the narrator wants you to feel. So Ruth goes back to gleaning, and Boaz goes on to inspect his fields and work with his people. Then verse 14, and at mealtime, so think lunch, Boaz said to her, Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Interesting. So she sat beside the reapers, his workers, and he passed to her a roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she even had some left over. So the first dialogue between Boaz and Ruth begs the question, what's going on here, okay? You ever been in a group of friends where two of the friends start to get along really well, right? And they've got inside jokes now, and they're like all, and you're like, something going on here, right? You just sort of, your kind of like radar goes up. Well, that, if you're an Israelite and you read that initial dialogue, you're like, whoa, like, Boaz is being way over the top. What's going on here? Make no mistake, verse 14 is the first date in the book of Ruth, okay? That is what is happening in verse 14. Boaz is asking her on their first date. And so let's take a second and understand how Boaz relates to Ruth in this scene, okay? Number one, he invites her to his table. As a poor foreign woman, she would not have been permitted to eat with the Israelites, right? She would have been an outcast. She would have had to go and eat by herself. But what Boaz does is he says, hey, this is my table. These are my workers. You come eat with us. So he invited her into community. Second, Boaz invited her to take bread and dip it in the wine. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Um, it was, your translation might say wine vinegar. You ever been to one of those restaurants where they have the really good olive oil before dinner and you dip the bread in it? That's what this is. It's an appetizer, okay? It was chips and queso. That's what this was. So functionally, functionally, to modernize the scene, they're all sitting at lunch. They're waiting for their order to come here. Boaz, because he's a generous guy, had ordered queso and was like, Ruth, come have some queso, man. Like, come enjoy yourself a little bit. It's been a long morning. It's delicious. You ever been to Guadalajara? It's amazing, Okay. That's what's going on. He's honoring her. He's not just like, you are permitted to sit at this table, but hey, I paid for this, but here, have some of this. Have some of this special food that I brought out here today. Third, the text says, she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And that phrase, passed to her, literally means served her. Literally means served her. Boaz, the lord of the harvest, the owner of the fields, was serving Ruth, the impoverished minority. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. She is, he is serving the impoverished minority. Finally, the text says that Ruth ate until she was satisfied and even had some leftovers. Even had some leftovers. Remember, she was very poor. She probably hadn't had a full stomach in weeks. Boaz relieved her poverty through his wealth. Again, if you're an Israelite reading this story, you have moved to the point of geeking out at this point. Okay, you're like, whoa, like what is happening? What is he doing? There's a lot of like innuendo going on, right? It's a big deal. So here's what happens next. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, so when she finished lunch, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So when Ruth goes back to work, Boaz calls his workers over and says, hey, come here, come here, let's huddle up. And he says, hey, here's the deal. She can glean anywhere she wants, all right? So previously, all she could do was this little section of field. But he says, look, she can glean in the sheaves. She can glean anywhere she wants. In fact, take out some of the stuff that you've already harvested this morning and drop it behind you so that she finds it. So Boaz opens up the whole farm, okay? So he goes from like a corner of the field to the whole shebang, okay? And this seals the deal, man. Something is definitely going on because as the kids say, Boaz is flexing a little bit, okay? And all the kids are like, we don't say that. Anyway, 
All right, I think of it like Meredith and I's first date. All right, so we met when we were in college, and there was this little restaurant in our town called La Perota, the Parrot, okay? It was this great Mexican place. And I had discovered that if I was uh, careful, I could eat an entire meal and be completely full at La Perota for under $8, okay? So if I drank water and I ate all the free chips, you know, I could, I could do it for under $8, and I often did, and it was wonderful. Well, um, Meredith and I went out to La Perota on our first date, and everybody said, wow, that's romantic, $8 Mexican restaurant, I know. Um, and, and I was totally different, okay? Usually I'd go in there and be like, I just want water, I'm just eating chips and queso. I mean, when Meredith and I went out, I, like, I was throwing soft drinks around, like, bring some more queso, do you want the mariachi guy to come and play? You know, like the whole deal. I was completely different, and the question is, Why? Well, I was trying to impress her, right? I was trying to impress her with my generosity, like, yes, I'm the kind of guy that could afford queso dip, right? That is what Boaz is doing. He is, he is going over the top to bless. He is going, hear me, way beyond what was required in the, in the law of God in Leviticus 19, okay? Something is definitely going on. And it made a big difference. He opened up where she was allowed to harvest, and it made a huge difference. Listen to verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epa of barley, okay? So after gleaning and processing what she collected, Ruth had an epa of barley. And you all said, that's amazing, an epa of barley? No, you actually said, what the heck is an epa of barley, right? Well, one commentary I looked at said an epa of barley is about three-fifths of a bushel. <laughs> Fantastic, you know, like, thanks for the help. So I pushed a little bit deeper to feel like, what does that mean, okay? So three-fifths of a bushel, an epa of barley, was anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of grain. 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Have you ever seen one of those big dog food bags, right, like the really big ones? That's how much grain this was. And to give you a little perspective, the average worker in those days would eat about one to two pounds of grain a day, okay? So that was sort of an, a ration for the day. In one day of gleaning, Ruth had collected enough food for a month. Just like let that settle in. In one day of gleaning, Ruth the foreigner had collected enough food for a month. Verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Remember, the fields were on the outside. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over from lunch after being satisfied. So we know Ruth was a pretty tough woman, okay? Because after working all day from morning till evening, she straps 50 pounds of grain onto her shoulders and she walks back into town. And I think in this moment, it's really helpful. You have to try to imagine Naomi, okay? Naomi has been sitting at home, wherever they're living, all day, probably worrying about Ruth's safety, like, oh, man, I hope she's okay out there, and just hoping that maybe Ruth would come back with like a little bit of grain that they could use to eat dinner. And as she's sitting there waiting for Ruth to come home, Ruth like lunges up, right, with like 50 pounds of grain on her back. It's just crazy, and you have to appreciate It's hard for us to appreciate this because we're not Israelites, okay? So she, she, she has 50 pounds of grain on her back. Oh, and leftovers from lunch, all right? So Naomi's jaws on the ground, right? And Ruth, like, like throws her grain down, like, slams it on the floor, and then, like, reaches in the back and is like, oh, and here's the burrito I couldn't finish, you know, and, like, gives it to her. It's been a good day, okay? That is what this verse means. It has been a good day. And you tell that in how she responds in verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Okay, that's how you need to read that. Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Right? Naomi's stunned. She's giddy. She's hoping for a handful of grain. And Ruth comes back with a haul, with a month's worth of food. But here's the best part. Naomi doesn't even know the best news yet. She doesn't know the best news yet. So Ruth responds, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz, is Boaz. See, the author intentionally withheld Boaz's name until the very end of that sentence to create tension. Because here's the deal. Naomi knows what a big deal Boaz is, but Naomi doesn't know that's where Ruth was working. Ruth does not know what a big deal Boaz is, but she does know that she was working with Boaz. All of a sudden, these two things come together, and it's like, wait a minute. We could have an option here. We could have some hope. We've had a, I mean, chapter one was just so sad. And all of a sudden, there's like a glimmer of this just might work out. Verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. 
Now, when Naomi said, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, was she referring to Boaz's kindness or the Lord's kindness? Well, it's honestly kind of hard to tell from the text, even when you look at the original Hebrew language. But it's kind of both. God is being kind to Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. So it's really both. And Naomi informed Ruth that Boaz was what was called a redeemer. Now, we're going to talk a lot about this next week, so I won't talk a lot about it here. But basically, God had set up a system also in the book of Leviticus, whereby if you lost your family land like Naomi had, there were specific relatives of yours that could get it back for you. There weren't a lot of them, but there were specific relatives called redeemers, and they could get you back your family land. Well, it just so happened that Boaz was one of Naomi's redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, verse 20, 21, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my, by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth, Naomi starts to play a little bit of matchmaker here. It's a, it's a bit subtle, but she's like, Yeah, you, keep, you, keep, you stay in those fields with Boaz. You keep, you keep gleaning with with those workers, right? And so Ruth does, and, and it seems like it's about six or seven weeks. That's how long the harvest usually was of that kind of grain. And so in one chapter, this is amazing, in one chapter, God has richly provided for one of their greatest needs, which is food. You see in chapter one that Ruth decides to walk by faith, and it's really scary. And then in one chapter, God provides an enormous amount of food. And here's the thing. Assuming that Ruth had similar, you know, harvest as she did that first day, by the end of this harvest, this six weeks of harvest, she and Naomi have enough food for at least a year. I mean, God has provided all the food that they need. But the chapter ends with a weird statement. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's a very strange thing to say. I mean, who else would she be living with, right? Like, why did the author say that in that moment? Well, because, again, he's bringing your attention back to their need for family. It's, honestly, it's a little bit disappointing. The relationship with Boaz started out, I mean, hot and heavy, Right? And yet she's been gleaning now for six or seven weeks. She's been rubbing shoulders with Boaz and nothing has happened. So at the end of chapter two of Ruth, we see that their great need of food has been provided by the Lord through Boaz, but they still have this great need for family, okay? They still need to walk by faith and wait on the Lord. So this, I, I love this story. This is a very interesting story. It's very intriguing, especially when you understand what's going on. Um, but what are we supposed to learn from the story? Okay, what are we supposed to learn? Well, we don't see God explicitly mentioned in every single verse of Ruth. The author does that intentionally. Instead, we see phrases like, it just so happened, or as it were. You see, the book of Ruth is written to show us that God is working behind the scenes, right? That he's not always splitting the Red Sea, but oftentimes, more often, he's working through people and circumstances to accomplish his purposes. The, the author is revealing is showing us that God is revealing his character through the characters in the story. He's revealing his character through the characters in the story. And because God's character never changes, what we learn about him through Ruth and Boaz is true for us today. Does that make sense? And specifically, the author wants us to learn at least four things. Two from Ruth about God's character and two from Boaz. So here are the four things. Number one, you could write this down. This is the first thing. We learned this from Ruth. God will provide for his people. God will provide for his people. That's one of the most obvious themes of this chapter. Ruth and Naomi could not have been more vulnerable and destitute when they set out from Moab. And yet, within a couple of weeks, God had provided all the food they needed for an entire year. And he did it in a couple of ways, but all of them were very behind the scenes. First, he did it in his law in Leviticus chapter 19, simply by caring about the poor and establishing the practice of gleaning. Second, he did it by drawing Ruth out of Bethlehem, and to Boaz's field. And then he did it by giving Ruth great favor with Boaz so that her harvest area was expanded. All right, God was at work providing for his people. You see, if you're a part of God's people by faith in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith and hope in God and said, Lord, you have, I, I'm yours, you are my shepherd, I'm the sheep of your pasture, he promises to provide for you, your physical needs. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was talking to a group of people that were really worried about what they were going to eat, what they were going to drink, and what they were going to wear. You might update that today to say, man, the job they were going to have, the friends they were going to have, the house they were going to live in, if they were going to get married, all these things. And he said this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, if you're a part of God's people through faith, God promises to provide your needs. 
So does that mean that we should all just sort of sit around, right? Just kind of sit around and, and wait for mail, you know, the mail to come and there to be money in, in the mailbox or whatever. Is that what we should do? Well, no. We actually learn about how God provides in Ruth's example. You see, God was pleased to bless Ruth's hard work. Verse 2 says that she took initiative to go and glean. She said to her mother-in-law, hey, I'm going to go out and glean. And verse 7 says that she worked from early morning until late in the evening with only a short rest. Right? Ruth epitomized what Proverbs 6 says. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Ruth took initiative and she worked hard to get what she needed. And we're called to act the same way. We honor God by working hard. We honor God by taking initiative. We honor God by planning. But hear me, that's not enough. That's simply not enough. We also need God to open doors for us. We need God to open doors just like he did for Ruth. Look, Ruth could have worked extremely hard. She could have taken initiative. But if no landowner gave her permission to glean, she would have been hopeless. In the same way, you can do all the right things. You can get in the right college. You can work super hard. You can get up early. You can do everything you're supposed to do. Read all the business books. But if God doesn't open doors for you, it's not going to be enough. Verse 7 tells us that Ruth needed the foreman to give her permission and that in verse 15 that Boaz, her harvest was so great because Boaz increased her area to glean. God promises to provide for his people. He promises to provide for you if you are one of his people. Right? We input initiative and hard work and God opens doors and provides opportunities. And oftentimes, just like in this story, the opportunities God provides are through his people, just like he provided for Ruth through Boaz. And I know there are some of you here, because I've talked to you, who worry a lot about money, okay? You worry a lot about money. You've told me, quote, it's your thing, right? Like, this is the thing that's really hard for me. You feel like you need a certain number in your savings account to be secure. So you stress about your performance at work or about unfor unforeseen expenses that come out, and you get really frustrated when things don't match your budget. And here's what I've learned. It's really easy for you. It's really easy for people that are worried about money under the pretense of financial wisdom to place your faith in your savings account and not in God. It just is. It's, oh, I'm just being financially wise. It's like, no, man, you, you just, you have an enormous amount of money in your savings account. You're not giving to the church. You're not being generous to other people, right? You're not, you're not, you're not honoring God. You're not trusting him. You're trusting in your savings account. But hear me, at the end of the day, it's God who provides for us. Look, you could do all the right things and there could be an economic recession again and wipe out all your investments. Like there might be people here that that happened to you years ago. Like that just happened in 2007. There are some things that you cannot control about the economy no matter what you do. You might work super hard, you might advance at your company and your company might go bankrupt and you have to start all over. It's just, it's just reality. But the good news is you're not the one ultimately who's providing for you, God is. God is the one who is providing for you. And if you start believing that truth about God that we learn from Ruth, if you believe that at the heart level, it will change you. It will enable you to live more generously because you won't need to hold on to all of it. For, for safety, you'll be able to give it away. And it will enable you to live with less anxiety, right? You won't always be worried about how many dollars in the savings account. And what if I lost my job? And what if this went wrong? And what if that went wrong? When you really believe that God provides for you, you can get up and work hard every day. You can take initiative and you can rest. And you can trust that the God who provided for your salvation will also provide for you day to day. The first thing that we learn about God from Ruth is that he provides for his people. Okay? Here's the second thing. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. Providence is a major theme in this chapter and in the entire book of Ruth. Providence. And all providence is a, is a powerful I love that word. It's a, it's a very rich theological word, but here's basically what it means. Providence means that God has a plan for your life and is orchestrating events behind the scenes to bring that plan to fruition. And all the note takers are like, slow down, right? Okay. Providence simply, personally, providence means that God has a plan for your life and is orchestrating events behind the scenes to bring that plan to fruition. I mean, just think about chapter two for a second. Right? Naomi and Ruth just happened to arrive in Bethlehem when the barley harvest began. Then, among all the fields that surrounded Bethlehem, Ruth just happened to end up in Boaz's field. Then Boaz just happened to visit the field that Ruth was in the day, that day, and he just happened to notice her, and he just happened to be of the clan of Elimelech, which meant he just happened to have social responsibility for her. The author wants us to see that nothing about this story just so happened. 
God was directing the whole thing. God was directing the whole thing. You see, Ruth reminds us that nothing happens by accident in the economy of God. Everything happens by appointment. Nothing happens by accident in the economy of God. Everything happens by appointment. That means there is nothing in your life that is accidental. God is divinely orchestrating all of the events of your life, all the happenings towards his glory and your good, even the ones that you don't understand. If you really believe that, if there's a deep-seated trust in God's providence in your heart, it will change how you respond when life feels out of control. When life feels out of control. You see, when life feels out of control for most people, they respond with a combination of anxiety and coping mechanisms. Okay? I I mean, that's me too. So it, it might look like this. Work feels out of control, so you pour yourself a glass of wine and lie awake at night thinking about it. Right? Maybe your family seems out of control, so after the kids are finally in bed, you throw down a double portion of Rocky Road ice cream and watch Netflix. Right? School seems out of control, so you stress all week and then blow off steam with your buddy Jose Cuervo. Right? Like, I can relate with more than one of those things that I just mentioned. Right? And you probably can too. That's just, in, our, in ourselves, that's how we process hard things. When life feels out of control, we start to try to cope somehow. We stress on the one hand and we, we do destructive things on the other hand. But, If you really deeply believe in the providence of God, you don't have to stress. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be knotted up all the time in your stomach. You don't have to overeat or overdrink or over whatever. If you really believe he has a plan for your life, it will teach you to say, even though life feels out of control, I have a wise and loving father who is orchestrating all the events in my life towards his glory and my good. Maybe write this down. Anxiety is like poison in your life and God's providence is the antidote. Anxiety is like poison in your life, and God's providence is the antidote. Anxiety will kill you. I mean, physiologically, anxiety will kill you, but it will also lead you to do all kinds of destructive things. But a deep trust in God's providence, a deep trust that he is controlling all the events of your life is the antidote to the poison of anxiety. And we see that in Ruth. We see that in Ruth. Here's the third thing that we learned. We learned this one from Boaz. Ready? Number three. God cares for the poor. God cares for the poor. In the midst of this love story and all the innuendo, don't forget that Ruth was materially poor and Boaz was materially wealthy. Boaz used his wealth to provide for Ruth in her poverty. And Boaz's concern for Ruth illustrates what is true about God in all the scriptures. God cares about the poor. Listen to Deuteronomy 10 says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see, God called his people Israel to care about the poor, to care about the sojourner, because when they were poor and when they were slaves in Egypt, God cared about them. In the same way today, if you were a child of God, you were called to care about the poor. When you were in bondage to your sin, when you had no spiritual wealth to speak of, God came and he sought you out and he gave you hope and he saved you through Christ and he gave you eternal riches and eternal inheritance, the book of Ephesians would say. And now in response to that, you are called to care for the poor in the same way that God does. And here's a good question to ask as you're thinking through this. Why does God make some people wealthy and other people poor? I mean, he's God, right? He could just even the playing field, right, and give everybody the same amount of money. So, so why does he do that? Here's why. So that the wealthy can be instructed by the poor and the poor can be helped by the wealthy. So that the wealthy can be instructed by the poor, hear me, and the poor can be helped by the wealthy. What do I mean? Well, wealth has an insidious way of knitting our hearts to this world. It just does. It has a way of teaching us to trust in ourselves rather than in God. It makes it very hard to have a relationship with God, honestly. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. By repetition, poor men learn to trust God for their daily bread, while rich men learn to trust their pantries. Simply by repetition, poor men learn to trust God for their daily bread, while rich men learn to trust their pantries. God made some people poor materially, but rich in faith as a rebuke and an instruction to people who are rich materially. This is one of the reasons why if you're an American and you go on a mission trip or any sort of trip to 
a developing country where there are people of faith, oftentimes you'll be deeply convicted. Because you'll encounter people who have nothing, so little. They live in poverty, and yet they're filled with such joy and such satisfaction. And you'll say, I have so much more than them materially and so much less satisfaction. They have so much less than me materially and so much more satisfaction. You see, all of us as Americans need to be instructed not to put our hope in our things, but to put our hope in God. And that is why God has allowed some people to be poor materially, but rich in faith. The rich are instructed by the poor, and the poor are helped by the wealthy. Look, God made some people rich. They made some of us, you know, made us wealthy as Americans so that we could care for people who were poor as an expression of God's character. To paraphrase Hugh Latimer, who's a Puritan minister, he said this, God never gives a gift without sending an opportunity for it to be used for his glory. He sends riches so that poor men may be helped by them. As Americans, we have been given an extraordinary amount of wealth. I mean, wealth that is un, beforehand unseen in the history of the world. That's true of all of us. Every single one of us fits into the category of rich in this room, okay, on a global scale. But even beyond that, within our congregation this morning, some of you have been blessed with even more wealth than the rest of us. God has given some of you unique blessings at work or family or whatever, and you have, you have proportionately more wealth even than the wealthiest people in the history of the world. The question is, why? If God is in charge of all the things that happen, why has he done that? As a stewardship. As a stewardship. God has given you wealth to help serve the poor and advance the mission of the church. You see, God never blesses you without commissioning you. You understand that? God never blesses you without commissioning you. Every blessing that you've received is attached to a commissioning that God wants you to go and do. To put it another way, for every Boaz in our church, there is a Ruth in our world. For every Boaz in our church, there is a Ruth in our world. We will all stand before God one day and give an account for what we did with the things that he gave us. When we read Boaz's story, we see God's concern for the poor through Boaz. Here's a convicting question. When someone reads your life story, do they see God's concern for the poor? If someone looked at how you spend your money and you spend your time and how you use the resources God has given you, would they step back and say, they must serve a God who loves the poor? Or do they step back and say, they must be an American? Pastor David Platt asked the question this way. We have extraordinary wealth, but are we a visible demonstration of the God who cares for the poor and loves the outcast? Are we sheltering them under our wings and serving them at our table? Look, it's not bad to enjoy the blessings that God has given you. He's a good father. He loves to give good gifts. But keep in mind that the more you grow in God, the less you will spend on yourself. The more you grow in God, the less you will spend on yourself. So let me ask you honestly, what do your spending habits say about the character of your God? What do your spending habits say about the character of your God? Boaz's life said that his God loves the poor. Do our lives say that same thing? Does our community look at Center Church and say, man, that church must serve a God that loves the poor. I'll, I'll be honest, I think we have a long way to go in this. I think we have a long way to go in this as a church. I know for me personally, for us individually, but we have to grow in this, guys. We have to grow in this. Look, Boaz teaches us that God cares for the poor. Here's the last thing. Boaz teaches us that God shows favor to outsiders. God shows favor to outsiders. Look, Ruth is an outsider in this story. Okay, the author emphasized that again and again. She's a Moabitess. She's from Moab. She's a foreigner. She's not from here. Again and again and again. What Ruth is looking for is an Israelite, someone with position, privilege, and power to show her favor. Ruth needed someone to leverage their position of strength to help her in her weakness. That's, that's her only hope. And that's exactly what Boaz did. And in doing so, Boaz revealed an important aspect of our God's character, a precious aspect. God shows favor and grace to outsiders. You see, last week, Ruth functioned as a picture of Jesus in our lives. This week, Boaz functions as a, as a picture of Jesus in our lives. What do I mean? Well, in our sin, we're like Ruth. 
We're spiritually impoverished. We're alienated from the family of God. We're outsiders. We have no ability or power to change ourselves. We need someone to leverage their position of strength to save us, or we have no hope. In his perfection, Jesus is like Boaz. He is a man of good standing. He is the one truly blessed by the Lord with righteousness that is overflowing. Ruth needed Boaz to show her favor or she would die. We need Jesus to show us favor or we will die. So what did it cost Boaz? What did it cost Boaz to save Ruth? Well, it cost him position. He had to lay down his position of social power and condescend to the foreigner. It cost him wealth. He harvested less that year because he gave so much away. What did it cost Jesus to save you? Well, it cost him position. He had to lay down the position of spiritual power at the right hand of God Almighty. And he didn't just condescend to talk to the foreigner. He became a foreigner. He took on flesh. He became a man of sorrows. He was executed outside of the city of God. He was treated like a criminal for you. He gave up position. He also gave up wealth. The Apostle Paul said it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, center church, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Look, when you realize, when you realize that you have been saved from spiritual poverty through sacrificial love, you will be moved to show sacrificial love towards those in poverty. That poverty might be material, that poverty might be relational, that poverty might be emotional, that poverty could certainly be spiritual. You see, when you see clearly, when you understand clearly that Jesus has been Boaz to you, you will be moved to be Boaz to others. We want to be a church full of people who are Boaz to others who go out towards the outsider, who go out towards the foreigner, who go out towards the person who are far from God, condemned in their sin, who go out towards the person who's awkward relationally, who doesn't have a lot of friendships, who goes out to the person who's needy emotionally, who goes out to the person that can't add social capital to your life. But you go out to them because that's what Jesus did for you. Do you understand that you add nothing to Jesus' life? There's no gift that God needs from you. There's no thing that you could contribute to him. But God came to you because he is gracious and kind and his character is such that he shows favor to outsiders. Oh, that we would be a church full of people who do the same. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much that when I was lost, when I was dead in my sin, when I was impoverished spiritually, you sought me out. You didn't stay in your seat of power. You didn't stay removed from me, but you got up. You sacrificed. You took on flesh. You paid for my sin. You died. You rose again. You gave me life. Thank you for the people. God, thank you for the people in my life that preached that message to me again and again. Thank you for the patience of people who walked with me in all of my wanderings. Thank you for the patience of my family. Thank you for the patience of my friends. Thank you for the patience of pastors and ministers who've invested in me, God. But thank you for doing that in the lives of many people here this morning. Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know that, who are still living as outsiders. That they would know they don't have to. They can come to the table that the Lord of the harvest is inviting them in. And I pray, God, for those of us who have been brought in, who have been brought into the family of God, that we would not be simply a cul-de-sac of your blessings, God, but that we would pour it forth. That your love and your care and your grace towards us would change us and make us that way towards others. Lord, make us a church in this city that is known as one that cares for the poor, that welcomes outsiders, that serves a God who does the same. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our honor. You're worthy of all the praise that we could bring. I pray all this in your son's name.